very pleased to be joined by our next guest, someone who ha I had a blast talking with uh, at the last place I was at. So looking forward to this conversation here. He is uh, the, the voice of sports uh, and movies. He is Adnan Burke. Mr. Burke, how are you today, sir? Peter, it's just great to finally see you. You know, we've talked so many times there on Calgary Radio, but never got to see you. So now I know what Peter Klein looks like. I finally started following Will Nolt and I believe Steinberg on Instagram. So that's a good plus. So I'll add you to my social media mix. But uh, it's great to see you, man. We miss obviously chatting with you on Calgary Sports Radio. How are you doing beyond this podcast? How's everything going? Uh, everything's good. Yeah. Covering the uh, the Canadian Football League. Uh, I've dabbled in writing now. Um, and uh going to uh, follow in your footsteps and uh, can't officially say anything, but doing some wrestling stuff on the side as well. So, Oh, that's great, uh, man. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's so funny. When I got the Raw gig, unfortunately, it was after you were no longer with 960. So Will yeah. and Steinberg kept saying, listen, wherever Peter Klein is right now, he is pumping his fist. So I, I wish I'd done a better job, but I know you'll do a better job than me. So I'm, I'm glad you'll do a little wrestling. That's awesome. I think, listen, Calgary and wrestling, I mean, the Hart family, I mean, it's, oh, just, yeah. it's so symbiotic, yeah. Yeah, it's the, the capital city of wrestling in this country. Um, and we'll yeah. touch on the wrestling thing here at the end. But I, I do yeah. want to talk uh, baseball with you. Last night, Charlie Morton breaks his leg uh, in a win for the Braves over the Houston Astros. Uh, goes on to get three more outs, which I can't even begin. I don't think I could do that on a video game if I had a broken leg. Um, how, how big of an injury is this for the Braves with, with no Charlie Morton here against the Houston Astros? Well, I think it evens things out because I think for Atlanta, their biggest strength is their starting rotation. And not only Morton, who's obviously been so great in the playoffs, not only with the Astros and the Rays, but also Ian Anderson's really good and Max Free. Despite the fact Free got roughed up in his last start against the Dodgers, he's been one of the best lefties in baseball the last two seasons. So that's the one area where Atlanta had a decided advantage. Houston's aces, Lance McCullers. He's been unable to pitch. He's unable, unavailable for the World Series after being unavailable with the ALCS. So the McCullers injury is pretty big for Houston, especially since their starting pitching looked awful the first four games against the Red Sox. Somehow they were 2-2, and then from Rivaldez tossed the best start so far in the postseason, the eight innings, one-run ball in game five, and then game six, Luis Garcia really stepped up. So what the Morton injury does is it kind of cancels each other out. So I don't think he's necessarily Atlanta's ace, but he was their game one starter, and McCullers would have been Houston's game one starter. So, all right, Atlanta had a real strength there. Both of your number one starters are gone. Now what do you got? I still think Atlanta has the advantage because Fried and Anderson are better than Garcia and Valdez. And you saw Frommer got roughed up yesterday. It was absolutely terrible from the jump. Couldn't even get through three innings. But there's no doubt that the bullpen for Atlanta had to step up huge in game one. I mean, Minter particularly was excellent, throwing 43 pitches. That's a career high. They have to have Max Fried now go deep in game two. And they're going to have to have Ian Anderson go deep in game three just to give their bullpen a breather a little bit because then they might need a bullpen game in game four, game five, so on and so forth. So uh, it, it hurts Atlanta. It's not catastrophic, but it certainly hurts. Yeah, and there's so much more reliance on bullpens now in the playoffs as it is that when you have the guy who's supposed to go six, seven innings, only go three, that that can really throw things into a tailspin. And seven-game series prove a lot, but it's also a quite a – it's a sprint, really. And so to have your game plan thrown off early, uh, that, that was huge last night what that bullpen was able to do. A hundred percent. And as you said, what they did was great, but then you can't rely on it happening again. Like if Max right. Freed gets roughed up in game two and has to leave in the third inning, they're in real trouble because now they go in. Minter can't pitch. He just threw 43 pitches. Luke Jackson did well after struggling the NLCS. I'm not sure what you can get out of him. All of a sudden, then you have to rely on it as Tampa has a bulk guy that can get you through four or five innings. So it's imperative tonight. Freed has to go at least five, if not six innings. Anything from game one change your opinion on this series at all? 
No, I, I've got Atlanta going in six. And normally when you look at the World Series, I generally tend to favor the AL teams because the American League's a better league. You know, it's got more talent and I think top to bottom, particularly offensively. When you see a pitcher go from the AL to the NL, his ERA decreases by a run. And similarly, if you go from NL to AL, it's inflated by a run. Now there's certain guys who are outliers, Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, et cetera. But my point is, generally, if I look at AL, NL, I go, well, Houston's a better team because they're in the better league. But... Atlanta did knock off the best team or the second best team in baseball in the Dodgers after they just outlasted the Giants. And I do think the balance for me, why I'm, oh, I'm picking Atlanta was they're starting pitching. So Morton hurts that, but I love the power of their infield. They've been incredibly durable. Peter, all those guys making their starts. It's not just Austin Riley. It's not just Ozzy Alves. It's also Dansby Swanson and Freddie Freeman, those four guys together. And then of course, as much discussed what Alex Anthopoulos has done, of course, it had to be a Canadian that got Atlanta the Braves back in the World Series. <laughs> the pride of Montreal, 12 years running the Braves, uh, excuse me, running the Blue Jays, Sporting News Executive of the Year back in 2015. The fact that he had the chutzpah to look at this team and say, you know what? We're an average team. They didn't get above 500 until August 6th, 111 days without being above 500. Forget about first place. And he goes, oh, we've lost our best player, Ronald Acuna. I think we got something here. What the hell? I'll go not one, not two, not three, but four outfielders. And he gave up virtually nothing. That's the biggest thing to me. Like Jock Peterson right. torments his former team. Okay, whatever. We'll get a bag of balls for him. Eddie Rosario, you know, decent with the Twins, Indians, whatever. He comes and all of a sudden he turns into Babe Ruth. You know, you look at Adam Duvall. He led the league 113 RBI. He had 38 home runs. And they also acquired Jorge Soler, who was the forgotten guy because he was out with COVID IL. He was terrible in the first couple of games of the playoffs. And what does he do in game one? He hits a home run. So for me, the the balance of Atlanta's offense, their starting pitching is better, and their bullpen stepped up, particularly Matzik and Will Smith. That's why I like the Braves. My opinion hasn't changed after game one, although now I feel like Houston, uh, game two is a must win for Houston. I can't imagine if they go down 0-2 at home. Yeah, no, that that's generally not a good recipe for success. Um, when, when we look at, at sports, a lot of times we talk about, oh, it's a copycat league, and every league apparently is that. If the Braves go on to win this, I don't know what there is to copycat from. It's like, well, just have someone get hurt, plug a bunch of holes, and play in a bad division. Like that's that that doesn't seem like the, a way that the the Blue Jays, for example, can. Oh well, let's just do X, Y, and Z like they did. A hundred percent. I mean, nobody wants to follow Atlanta's script. Let's underachieve for the first half of the season, despite the fact we're expected to win the division. We'll lose our best player. And as you said, make a bunch of moves. And Anthopoulos has said, you know what this goes back to is 2014 when the Jays did not make the playoffs, but they were close. They didn't make any big moves at the deadline. And he said, Jose Bautista like, took it personally. He was telling Anthopoulos, if you should have believed in us, we should have made some moves. He's like, all right, fine. The next year, as you know, they made a ton of moves and made the playoffs with Bautista backflip and all the rest of it. So it's interesting how his time in Toronto impacted Alex and his thinking moving forward. Maybe another GM, Peter, next year says, hey, my team is okay, but I feel like the team we're chasing is vulnerable. Look at what the Braves did. Let's also try to capitalize and we'll buy a bunch of investments who haven't worked out elsewhere. Maybe, maybe a team now is a little more likely to push the pedal to the metal, but you're right. Overall, it's been a real balance of drafting guys and getting very team-friendly contracts. Acuna, I believe, is eight years, 100 million, which is a steal. He oh. should be getting twice that, right? Forget about 12 and a half million. He should be getting 25 million a year. And Albies is the biggest joke in the sport. I mean, seven years, 35 million, five million a year is insane. He should be getting, again, 15 million a year. So I think team-friendly contracts, Albies Acuna, you can afford to pay Freeman, who's a free agent, but I think he comes back. You draft well, good young pitching, uh, supplement that with a veteran or two, like Charlie Morton or Drew Smiley, and there's your recipe for success. Obviously, I'm not looking at this from the, the most unbiased of perspectives with the, the, the Winfield jersey and the, the background here, but um, watching this from a Blue Jays perspective, I don't feel like Toronto would be out of place in, in any of this. Like, I, I feel like 
when you look at how the Blue Jays ended the season, this feels like a team that could be in this spot and it wouldn't be, oh, wow, look at the plucky Blue Jays. It would be that this is a Blue Jays team that deserves to be here. Are you kind of on that similar wavelength with me? A hundred percent. When the Jays were on their run in September, everyone at MLB Network kept saying, this is the one team you don't want to face. Like this Blue Mm -hmm. Jays offense is ferocious and now their pitching has turned it around, especially the acquisition of Barrios and just how good Robbie Ray was. I mean, he might win the Cy Young, despite the fact that last year against the Yankees, I wish he'd pitch better. Giving up those home runs was just a killer. But yeah, I think a lot of people looked at Toronto and said, if they get in, they're going to be trouble because of Ray, Barrios, Ryu. Okay, there's your three of them. Ryu wasn't great in the second half. But again, it's the offense. You say Vlad Jr. is the runner for the MVP. Marcus Simeon had the most home runs ever by a second baseman. The fact that Tiasco Hernandez never gets mentioned, he's got 100 RBI. And then there's Boba Shett with his 100 RBI. So those four players specifically, you go, man, this is a scary team. The only real concern, of course, was the bullpen. But then they shored that up in the second half of the season, particularly Jordan Romano was so critical as a closer for Toronto. So I think people watching the play, uh, watching the end of the regular season, it's frustrating for the Jays. I mean, they split that series against the Twins. Two of four was brutal. Yeah. I think they lost the series against the Rays, two of three. And then the Yankees, they lost that series. So Toronto had their opportunities. But I have no doubt if the Jays had made the playoffs, they might have done what the Red Sox did, which is upset the Rays and then maybe challenge and uh, gone all the way to the World Series. When you look at the Blue Jays offseason, how important is getting Simeon back? And if they don't, there's obviously a lot of options out there, but how confident would you be in the Jays being able to, to replace that in the free agent market? I think it's going to be really tough to replicate, but I think he's going to be really expensive. I talked to Ken Rosenthal, of course, MLB Network does a great job on Fox Sports. And Kenny's pretty plugged in. He goes, listen, Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon, both those guys are going to get $100 million contracts. Think about that. Robbie Ray signed a one-year $8 million deal. That's one of the greatest one-year deals ever. He might win a Cy Young. And yes. now he's going to get $100 million from that. He's going to get 12 times that. And you look at Simeon, one-year $18 million, Not cheap, but again, this guy was top five in MVP in 2019. He goes out and has a remarkable season. He's going to get $100 million. So you and I both know that Rodgers could afford both of these guys, but I think it's unlikely they sign both. I think starting pitching is probably more important to the Blue Jays than offense because it seems like they've got a lot of big boppers. Having said that, I would take a deep breath if I gave $100 million to Robbie Ray. I mean, he had a remarkable season, but he's certainly been inconsistent in the past. But my feeling is they won't sign both. They'll sign one of the two. That's why I think it's Ray, not Simeon. Yeah, well, with, with I, I would prefer Simeon to Ray from a, a Blue Jay fan perspective. And I'm kind of with Ray, I'm kind of taking a bet on Pete Walker, who I think has turned into one of the best pitching coaches in the league. He did this with Ray. Matt's had his best season with, with Pete Walker. Same thing with Jay Happ. I, I would almost rather see if you can find lightning again, or uh, see if lightning can strike twice, I guess, to, uh, mixing metaphors, uh, than locking in Ray long-term and just hoping this is him now. No, I think you're probably right, Peter, because, again, as I said, I'm taking a deep breath. I'm giving this guy five years, $100 million. I'm like, yeah. or four years, $100 million. I'm like, I don't know, early 30s. Again, incredible year, but I just haven't seen it year over year. It's not like Zach Wheeler, who was great with the Mets but got hurt, and the Phillies knew, hey, listen, if he's healthy, watch out. And then he obviously broke through. So you're right. P. Walker deserves an enormous amount of credit. The biggest key for Robbie Ray was finding the strike zone again. You know, once he cut mm-hmm. down all those walks, he's always been a strikeout artist. Still is probably giving up too many home runs. We see that happening, but – Overall, he was a stud. So I think you're right. You might be able to go, you know what? Let's go get a, a number three, number four starter. I hope Pete Walker can work his magic. And we've still got Barrios another year. We've still got Ryu. Let's add another guy who we think could be a number three. How crazy is this offseason going to be? Just I don't want to talk too much offseason when we still have the championship to be decided. But you have all those big names at free agent. 
You have the Yankees who need to do something. You have the Angels who forever have needed to do something. The Blue Jays are going to be looking to spend. I would guess the Phillies and the Mets won't be quiet. Like this, this feels like one of those off seasons that has people talking right up until spring training. I think so. And particularly because you've got all those free agents. I mean, that's what's fascinating to me is that where's Carlos Correa going to go? I mean, I can see the Tigers. They've got money to spend. Former manager and AJ Hinch, they could just go, all right, fine. 10 years, 240 million. 10 years, 250. You're our guy. Correa has had some injury issues in the past, but he's awesome. I mean, he's incredible defensively. He's always number one in defensive run save. Everyone knows what a great postseason performer he is. Hits for average, hits tons of power. So I think that's intriguing. Corey Seager, the Yankees obviously need a shortstop. Clever Torres is not the answer. Seager's a left-handed bat. You can see him doing damage at Yankee Stadium. Maybe he goes there. Trevor Story's not going to go back to Rockies. What team does he go to? As you said, the Mets are not going to be shy because of the fact that they've got clearly money to spend and that owner in Steve Cohen. So he wants to make some moves. He was obviously very frustrated. This is a Mets team that spent 103 days in first place and it didn't make the playoffs since 1969. Like that's the worst number ever for a team to have that many days in first place and still not sniff the playoffs. So the Mets aren't going to be shy about signing some guys. Stroman's going to be a free agent, one of their guys. So uh, I think you're right. This, this free agency, particularly because those shortstops are really interesting. Starting pitching is not as strong, although Max Scherzer's a free agent. Justin Verlander, I believe, is coming back as a free agent. So there's a, a couple old war horses there. Before I let you go, I have to talk about the wrestling thing. Yeah. Um, as, as discussed, that, that that is my jam. Um, and if nothing else, <laughs> you'll be able to, to go to pro wrestling uh, conventions for the rest of your life now. Um, so th th there is that. But I guess uh, a couple of things. One, how, how different was what you expected that to be versus what it actually came out to be? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, Peter, and I, I haven't spoken publicly about this at all, so this is your exclusive. Congratulations. But I think the biggest thing for me was that, you know, I, I loved wrestling as a kid. I mean, Demolition, Dino Bravo, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, WrestleMania in Toronto. Again, as I mentioned, the Hart family, you know how much Canadians love wrestling. So I loved it as a kid. I didn't watch as much as I got older. And then you get offered this opportunity to audition for it. You're like, why not? Of course I'd love to do this. And so they sent me a few matches to look at. And... Um, I would, I would describe it kind of like an actor, like you're giving a few scenes from a streetcar named Desire. So I studied really hard. I nailed those three scenes, but then you actually have to hold, do the whole play on Broadway. And that's, of course, a much different thing than just doing a scene study of three scenes. Now you have to be Stanley Kowalski for an entire run every, every week. So I think the biggest challenge for me was that, you know, it's hard to be really well-versed in the sport when you're trying to catch a freight train that's already going 100 miles an hour, right? So I'm this guy running alongside the train trying to catch up. Someone like you who has all this wrestling knowledge and has been so well-vested, like it's it's hard to make up for that gap in time. Now, the one thing that helped is that unlike baseball or other sports, you don't have to say, hey, remember three years ago at WrestleMania, what happened? Like actually you never do that, which is very different than normal sports. You're only looking at what I was broadcasting on Raw, what happened the previous week or two weeks. That's it. It was never forget about six months ago. So in that instance, you don't really need to know the history of wrestling, but I guess what I'm saying is as a play-by-play -play guy, you got to know the moves, you have to know the mechanics, the nomenclature. And I think, you know, in all honesty, in all candor, I, I kind of struggled to adapt to that. And, um, you know, ultimately I, I wasn't good enough for that position. Everybody there was awesome. Corey Graves is phenomenal. I think he's a huge talent. I think Byron Saxon's a huge talent. You and I both know you never want to be in a situation where you're the weakest link. And, and I knew I was, and that's never a good feeling to be in. But those guys were such good teammates because they knew, hey, listen, man, it's kind of like a baseball team. We know you need some help here. We're here to help you out. Like you're new at this. Like just, just lean on us and we're good to go. 
which was so generous of them. Um, Kevin Dunn obviously is a great producer. Michael Cole was very, very generous. Michael obviously is not only the voice of SmackDown and the honor voice of wrestling, but he also is part of the on-air you know, conglomerate. He oversees the talent. So Michael was so helpful. Every week I would do the show, I'd watch the show. I'd call Michael on Thursday, we'd go through stuff, go through notes. I would try to make as many notes as I could. The big thing that I miss from conventional sports is we have incredible researchers. You know, at, at baseball and MLB Network and HL Network and ESPN, you have people who literally hand you notes and up, 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 up. There's, there's five notes on each person and stats and you know all these things that I'm talking about, a stat pack as you get at a Calgary mm-hmm. Flames game. In wrestling, you don't have that. You just go there and you're calling Charlotte Flair and it's like, it's up to you to kind of do your own research and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose in hindsight, maybe if I had hired a Peter Klein to say, okay, here, give me all the notes you got on blah, 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 blah. What should I say about the street profits? You know, tell me about this and that. I kind of maybe would have had a better idea as far as the storylines, but Everybody there, I have such respect for them because they work so hard, Peter. Week in, week out, those guys are on the road. Like, that is very, very hard to do. It's a huge commitment. Uh, Vince McMahon is obviously a very demanding boss. He knows what he wants. He's obviously a super smart guy. He's built up an enormous business. Um, but they are, they are really, really hard workers. And I will say on a personal level, I hated to travel. I mean, I, I've got four kids, oh, as you man. know. I, I hated the fact that every Sunday I had to leave at 1230. I literally went to one of my boys' baseball games, and I, I didn't see my other three kids because you had to get there early enough to take a COVID test. Remember, this was April in Florida. Then you do your on-site Monday. I'm completely away from my family. And then Tuesday, I'd fly home and literally Atlanta, go right to MLB Network and go do a baseball show after not having seen anything the night before. So I really did not like to travel. I knew that I would not be able to do it for 52 weeks a year for two years. But again, it was a really cool opportunity. They offered it to me. I did my best. Uh, I'm grateful for the experience. I'm grateful to Nick Khan, my former agent, who was, of course, the president of WWE. I just wish I'd done a better job. But ultimately... I don't have any regrets. It's not like I can look back and say, oh, if I only had done that, because then you wouldn't have known that going in, right? I just right. I just didn't have the facility to be a great wrestling play-by-play guy. And I will say, I'm very grateful to the people who were kind. I got a lot of hate. I got a lot of trolls. Don't worry, I saw all that. I, I, I can see my mentions. Thank you very much. Um, but I, it was very nice, especially after I was done. The amount of people would say, hey, listen, I kind of I liked hearing you. I thought you had a different voice. I thought you had a different cadence. I remember you from the score. I used to watch on ESPN. So it, it wasn't as, as negative as some might think it was, I suppose. Uh, I know I do have to let you go, but I, I have one more. What was working with Vince McMahon like? He, he is a, a mythical figure amongst wrestling fans. We don't get a lot of glimpses into the, the real life person. How many, or I guess, what were your interactions like with him? Yeah, he was great. I, I didn't see him my first show. I mean, here's the other thing. They, they didn't give me any training, which I know some people kind of point out as maybe a little bit unfair. I mean, I don't think you hire Jason Witten on Monday Night Football and not give him a little bit of training. But I, I recognize that's the way the WWE does things. So no excuses. That's my fault that I wasn't good enough. But um, to your point, it's not like I met with Vince before my first show. I mean, I literally was just kind of prepping on my own and doing my best. And Michael Cole was helping out. But the first time I met Vince, like the, my first show was April 12th, my mom's birthday. I did not meet Vince there. I heard his voice in my ear at one point. He was giving some direction during the show. I met him after the second show. Uh, he summoned me in and um, I met him and he was very polite and very um, respectful. And uh, he just basically gave really good feedback. He was like, you know, he went through everything very detailed and said, okay, you know, do this more of this or don't do this, avoid this. Um, but at the end, he said, you know, you're doing a good job and, you know, best of luck. I'm like, awesome. So I met with him that time. He was at the meeting, except you'd have a meeting on, on Raw, like let's say, at, I don't know, noon, I think was the meeting time. Oftentimes it would get pushed back. So Vince sometimes would be there, sometimes he wouldn't be there. But if he was in the meeting, like obviously it had a real different tenor. You know, he's an important guy. He's got great presence about him. Whatever he says, people are going to do because he's the boss. Uh, I met with him again after the third show. Again, he gave me feedback, went through, okay, don't do this, don't do this, do more of this. Um, So I I really appreciate the fact he was willing to meet with me and give feedback. 
And uh, like I said, I just wish I could have done better. I wish I could have uh, been there longer. But it was definitely cool to meet him. Like I said, I have a ton of respect for him. Everyone knows growing up, Vince McMahon, not just obviously the CEO, but obviously the character of Mr. McMahon. So it was really cool actually just to meet him and shake his hand and, and hear what he had to say because he's, he's obviously a very smart guy and a brilliant businessman. Well, it was cool to see you on there um, as, as brief as it was. Uh, and cool to chat today, man. Thank you so much. I know you have a lot going on literally all the time. So uh, thanks for carving out some time for me and we'll, we'll chat again soon. Of course, Peter, we finally got it done. You asked me in the summer, my brother was coming. I said, no, we can't do it now. Then last week, I had the kids, the doctor's appointment. So I, I couldn't blow you off again. So I, I appreciate your dogged <laughs> persistence. And like I said, this is an exclusive. I haven't talked anywhere about my wrestling experience. I haven't even talked about it in Cinephile. So kudos to Peter Klein, intrepid reporter with the, uh, with the scoop. Yeah, relentless texter. We'll, we'll go with that instead of reporter. Uh, Adnan, thanks for this. All right, Peter, good talking to you, man.